The talk news shows, you know, the, the ones where they have the talking heads every Sunday morning, you know, Fox, ABC, everybody has them and does them. One of the things I've been struck by over time is the folks that are on there being interviewed, generally, they're not just talking heads that the network is using, but of course they're using the network as well because most of them have an agenda. You know, they're politicians no less so than the politicians running for office. And so you realize after a while that when they answer a question, they're trying to answer in a way that backs their candidate or position. They're not just telling you this objective position or this is my objective take. Everybody's got an agenda. And so they shade what they answer and how they answer because they're trying to get across their point of view while they're being interviewed as an objective reporter, which they're certainly not. So as you listen to them, you, th- you think, what's the take? What's the bottom line? What are they trying to get me to believe? You know, it's all about appearances. And if you can shape what people believe, you can control them. You know, uh, D-Day and the invasion of the beaches in France, the Normandy invasion, everybody recognizes was a turning point in World War II and the loss of life there was huge, it was immense and the, the battle itself to take these well entrenched fortified positions on these beaches was very, very costly in human life and we've got cemeteries of course in France today with American soldiers buried there, the cost of the D-Day and the Normandy invasion. The human toll in the loss of life was immense, and yet they won. And in fact, in part, the military victory, high cost as it was, was probably achieved before the ships ever started across the straits from England, before they ever hit the beaches of Normandy, because another battle had been waged for months before the invasion took place, And it was a battle of the mind and the battle for what would someone believe and how can we control and manipulate them. So when we hear about D-Day, we routinely do not hear about the battle that preceded it. And it was a military intelligence battle. And this was the thing. The Allies knew that if they didn't get a beachhead, a landing spot that they could defend and hold in Europe, they were going to have a tough time defeating Hitler and the Germans. So they said, we've got to have a place that we can secure in Europe. So how do we do this? If the Germans know where we go and and where we're going to land, they are formidable and we're not sure we can carry it off. And of course, as it was, it was a very difficult task anyway. So the Allies came up with a plan. And their plan was subterfuge, and it was deception, and this is how it played. They said, basically, we want to convince the Germans that we're going to invade Europe from the north. And so the Allies started a campaign, a subterfuge campaign, a campaign of deception to make the Germans think there was a huge American army and another British army that, in fact, did not exist. They had radio traffic about these soldiers and their battalions and their divisions that they let the Germans intercept. And they had uh, spies. The Germans, of course, trying to confirm everything as you do in warfare, what's real, what's not. So they're asking their agents, is this stuff real? You guys are in the know. Is this really going on? And their agents confirmed, absolutely, this is going on. And the Germans didn't know their agents were double agents. And they were simply feeding the line the Brits and the Americans wanted them to believe. They also knew that the Germans would do some aerial reconnaissance. And so they said basically that this invasion is going to come out of Scotland. So 
In Scotland, when the German reconnaissance planes flew over, they took pictures. And indeed, Scotland was covered with airplanes and tanks. And what the Germans didn't know is the airplanes were plywood and the tanks were blow-up rubber tanks. There was no army. There was no additional forces that were going to come in through Norway and Northern Europe. They didn't exist. But the Germans believed they did, and that's all that mattered. And so there were 13 divisions or something of Germans kept up in the north. There was another section of German artillery and, and army kept, place in, in, uh, kept in place in another section where they thought the Allies were going to come. So bloody and costly as D-Day was, the truth is it would have been far worse if the Allies had not been successful in this campaign of deception and delusion. Listen to this... Uh, this is from strategybydesign.org online. They said, The Allies won the Battle of the Mines through this and other even more important ruse strategies. Misleading the enemy is a stratagem dating back not centuries but millennia. As Sven Zi, I hope I got that right for Jen, wrote in The Art of War, All war is based on deception. All war is based on deception, said the great Chinese military strategist. So costly as the, as the war on the ground was in Europe, the reason it was successful is because the Allies had succeeded in the battle of the mind, what the Germans believed. If they hadn't succeeded there, hard to say what the outcome would have been on D-Day, whether the Allies would have succeeded there or the war would have lasted a lot longer than it did, hard to say. When you and I listen to someone, talk shows or otherwise, uh, how do we know what's true? How can we determine if we're being fed a line because somebody wants to manipulate us? You know, there's some reason why they want us to believe one thing that's not true. How do we sift what we hear and see and say this is true and this isn't? Because again, all of us live life based on what we believe. And if what we believe is wrong especially in the spiritual or eternal consequence categories, it can be a very, very bad thing. And this morning we're talking about what we believe and what that looks like and how we can determine what's true and what isn't. And kids, I'm, spe I'm specifically this morning, if you're adolescent and up to college age specifically, I'm, I'm, I really want you to hear this this morning. You know, when you hit adolescence, your brain chemistry changes and, you know, all of a sudden you think you know everything that your parents never knew because all of a sudden your brain can reason in ways it couldn't before. And so as adolescents and young adults, you are making decisions about what you'll think is true for the rest of your life in some cases. And so as you read, as you study, as you listen to people, as you watch TV or whatever, you're deciding what's true and what isn't. And it's pretty important to know how can I determine if what I'm hearing is true or not? What does that look like for me? Am I being deluded? Is someone else deceiving me because they have an agenda for me? Whether we recognize it or not, we are as much in a battle today as if we were a military soldier in Afghanistan or Iraq, but it's a spiritual battle. And the battlefield is the mind. It's the arena of beliefs and ideas. We're not fighting with bombs and bullets, but we are battling with the truth. So this morning we're talking about spiritual warfare. It's a battle for the mind M-I-N-D, not minds. We're in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. And guys, we make a hard right turn in this epistle this morning. You know, we talked for the last 
two times in Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 about giving. We've talked about a number of things up to this point. Chapter 10 pivots in this letter. And Paul is now anticipating his trip to see the Corinthians. And because of this, the next chapters, 10, 11, 12, and 13, deal mainly with Paul's relationship with the Corinthians and whether or not they believe what he's telling them. You remember we've talked about this before, but his integrity is on the line for the Corinthians. They have reason, which we'll talk about here this morning, to think maybe they shouldn't believe Paul. So this is a pivotal point in the letter, and Paul wants to start addressing them on the issue that I'm going to come, you need to be able to listen to me, and this is part of what's going on. If you have a study sheet, I'm reading from New American Standard, if you don't, but 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. By the way, let me say, if not convoluted, I'm covering a lot of details this morning and a lot of ground, and I'll try and keep going fairly quick pace so I get through this in a timely fashion, so bear with me as I do. Paul says, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. The some would be Paul's naysayers, those who are opposed to Paul and his apostleship. Some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. In other words, when we finish these matters. Before we get to the issue of warfare, I want to cover one base because it's here and it's an important note, and that has to do with both Paul's meekness on one hand and his boldness on the other. Paul knew how to be meek, and he also knew how to be bold. Looking through this a little quickly, but look at verse 1. Paul says, I who am meek, I'm mild, I'm gentle, he says. This is the same word, Galatians 5.23, to the fruit of the Spirit gentleness or meekness. If you read in Galatians 6 or in Ephesians 4, this is the same kind of quality, character quality. Paul says, helps us to honor Christ in the way we live. If we reprove or correct a brother, we're supposed to correct them in meekness. It's the same word. So Paul says, I who am meek. I'm meek and I'm gentle. That's a characteristic I have. I'm meek and gentle, even as he's going to start introducing this concept of warfare. It shifts dramatically, but he says, I am meek and I want to be meek. If you see in verse 2, he says, uh, I ask that when I'm present, I need not be bold. I've got things to accomplish with you guys, and I want to be able to do that in meekness. I don't want to have to be bold. I will if I need to, which we'll look at in a second. But Paul says, meekness is what I prefer. And then if you look at verse 1 again, and verse 2 on a different lane here, Paul says, I urge you in verse 1, and he says, I ask that when I'm present in verse 2, I urge you is I implore you, I plead with you, I exhort you. Please. He's saying please, pretty please. And then he says the same thing again in verse 2. I'm asking that when I'm present, depending on your translation, it might say I beg, I plead, I beseech, I implore. 
He's using pleading tones, meekness, on the front end of a discussion about warfare, spiritual warfare, to say, I hope that I can come and speak in meekness and you'll be able to hear me. That's my preference, he says. In fact, it's the same language from back in chapter 5, verse 20, through 6, verse 2, when he said, we're ambassadors for Christ. We beg you on Christ's behalf. It's the same language. We're begging you. We're pleading with you in meekness. Paul's demonstrating that wisdom James talks about, Michael, in James 3, when he says that the wisdom from above is peaceful and it's gentle. Same thing here. When I can be meek, Paul says, I'm going to be meek. Now, there's another side to this, of course. If you look in verse 1 and 2 again, Paul says, I bold toward you when absent. This means courageous or confident. You remember we talked about there's probably a couple of letters Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we do not possess. And one is called by commentators a severe letter. And the implication is these guys in Corinth are saying, look, Paul's not much to look at. And his voice is lousy. He's not a great speaker either. But he can be scathing when he writes a letter. Bold in his absence. And Paul says, yeah, I'm the one whom you say is bold when I'm absent when I write those letters. Verse 2, he says, courageous, that's fearless, that's one who's willing to endure. Paul says, I propose to be courageous against some who basically mistake who and what we are. So on one hand, Paul says, I'm, I am meek, I want to be meek, but I can be bold, and I will be bold if I need to. In other words, if, the, if a fight is unavoidable, Paul says, I am in the fight. I'm not going to retreat, and I'm not going to back down. There's a time to concede. James talks about that. We yield to others when we can. But in issues of truth and doctrine and bottom line things, Christians cannot afford to yield. And in those instances, like Paul, we are called to be courageous, fearless. We hold our ground. We don't concede. We join the fight. We engage in the warfare. You know, you look at Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine, and by the way, throughout this epistle... Paul's trying to show the Corinthians what Jesus is like. The comparison is always towards Christ. And you remember when Jesus comes, the Jews say he's not much to look at. Who's his dad anyway? We're not sure he has a dad. Maybe he's illegitimate. He didn't look the part of a Messiah. Jesus said in Matthew 11, 29, I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. That's what I'm like. I'm like a shepherd. I can comfort you. I can guide you in meekness on one hand. And the flip side is, go, go to John 2, and Jesus is the one taking those leather thongs, making a scourge, and he is violently driving out those money changers from the temple. So you see both elements of meekness in Jesus on one hand, and just this fearless assault on the other, and basically you see the same thing reproduced in Paul. Meekness where he can be, bold and courageous when he needs to be. Now to the element of the battlefield and the fight and the warfare, The battlefield is the mind. And Paul, when you get into verse 3, all of a sudden the language changes. You know, look at verse 4. He says, the weapons of our warfare. Verse 5, we're destroying things. You know, armies are, are good at destroying things. I've been told that by, by soldiers and Marines. Armies are good at destroying things. And Paul's talking like a soldier here. This is the language of warfare. He says, we've got weapons, and we are pulling things down. We've come in with a demolition crew. That's what we're about. 
He's out to wage a spiritual war, war and he's going to tear down things that are getting in the way of the truth. So if you look at verse 5, Paul talks about the things he's waging warfare against and the things he intends to destroy or tear down. So in verse 5, he says, we're tearing down speculations, calculations, reasonings, judgments. He says, we are tearing down every lofty thing that's opposed to the truth about Christ. Every lofty thing. He says, we're tearing down thoughts, mental perceptions in the church in Corinth. Things they think are true that aren't. Everything Paul's talking about here have to do with thoughts, beliefs. The battlefield is the mind. What do they think is true? What are they hearing? What are they being told is true? That's the battlefield, Paul says. That's where the warfare is being waged. If you can control what a group of people think, you don't need bombs and bullets. You just get them to do what you want if you can control what they think is true. And that's what's going on in Corinth. If you go to Ephesians 6, and by the way, this Ephesians 6 is sort of a more complete passage on spiritual warfare. We'll, we'll mention it here just a couple of times. But in verse 11 there in Ephesians 6, Paul says, Put on God's armor so you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. They are schemes. They are methods. The Greek there is actually for methods. They are well thought out plans, just like the Allies did to the Germans, to deceive the Corinthians and to, de- to deceive us today. It's thought or mind control writ large that the enemy is after. Now, <clears throat> there's a couple, we'll mention just a couple things this morning on what those deceptions were for them and for Paul. The first thing, one of the things they're deceived about is Paul's apostleship. We've talked about this before. Paul's an apostle. He really is. He's really Christ's spokesman. And yet in Corinth, they think maybe he's not. So you can imagine what's at stake. Paul is a very selfless guy. It really is about Christ's honor. It's about serving others, about loving God and loving others. It truly is. Exemplary. He knows that if they choose to shun him and think, conclude wrongly that he's not God's spokesman, they're going to listen to his... Um, to the opposition that's in Corinth there, naysaying him. And these are not good guys, and they're not telling the truth. And so one of the things that's at stake, one of the ideas Paul's trying to tear down in the Corinthian church is that Paul is not an apostle because it's to the Corinthians' benefit to know that he is so they can believe what he says. That's one of the areas of deception. You know, cults get started when someone within an Orthodox group starts learning something new, something that people before didn't know, and they start spinning that to other people. You know, if you look at most groups in the United States that are either considered cults or are considered non-Orthodox, most of the leaders in those groups started within the Orthodox Church, and they went from there. This would be like the leaders in Corinth. They're there. They appear legitimate. They appear Orthodox. They're not. Paul addresses that here in just a little bit. Um... The second area that there's clearly at least the seeds of deception have already been sown has to do with Christ and the gospel. If you look forward at chapter 11, verse 4, Paul starts getting in at chapter 11 talking specifically about his opposition, these these people he calls super apostles in Corinth who are naysaying him. In chapter 11, verse 4, he says, if someone comes, and when he says if, he means they are. 
If someone comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received from us, or you have a different gospel which you've not accepted, you didn't get that from us, you didn't receive that from us, he says you bear it beautifully. In other words, the opposition in Corinth, they're presenting heresies about both Jesus and the gospel. And the Corinthians are listening to it and they are entertaining those thoughts. So this is clearly one of the other areas of deception. These false so-called super apostles are preaching another gospel, another Jesus, another way to heaven and to God. And that's what Paul's confronting in his day and his time. Paul is trying to save them from being the casualties of war. If they buy these guys' line, if they believe the deceptions, their, their lives are going to fall out. He's trying to prevent them from being casualties of war. I'll mention briefly, too, the Corinthians struggle with poor thinking and conclusions for a couple of reasons. I hope these would never be true for us, but here they are. The first is that they're simply a carnal group. They're a shallow group. They're a shallow, spiritual, carnally-minded group. You see this in either of the letters written to the Corinthians that we have. So in the first Corinthians, when Paul writes to them, he says, Guys, when we came to you, we didn't come by way of wisdom or superior speech. We didn't try and come to you and look impressive because we know that's your default position. So when we came to you, we simply spoke the simple truth about Christ, his death and resurrection, and that's God's means for your salvation. That's all we did. Later here in the next verse, I think it's verse 7, Paul says that you're looking at things as they are outwardly. You guys are impressed with outward appearance. You know, God says outward appearances mean nothing in spiritual warfare or in God's kingdom. Again, if you think of Jesus, he looks like an illegitimate son from the wrong side of the tracks. He's diminutive. He's not well-educated. He looks very unimpressive. Just like young King David did also when Samuel came to look for God's next king for Israel. They focused on outward appearance. Health and wealth. How handsome are you? How attractive are you? How well placed socially are you? And that's why they were easily taken in. Guys, if we are impressed by other people's social stature, finances, how well they speak, what school they went to, came from... We are poised just like the Corinthians to be deceived. It's not about outward appearances. It's about Christ's authority and the truth of the scriptures. That's the bottom line. So to the degree that we tend to be carnal like they were, basing our judgments on what we can see with our eyes, what looks outwardly impressive, just like the Corinthians, we're set up to be deceived. The other thing that they had going against them related to deception was they had double agents in their midst. These guys that they think look the part, these are the real deal. These guys that speak well. They were Jewish. They had some kind of Jewish pedigree. Paul will get into all this later. We'll look at that later. They looked outwardly impressive and they were probably great orators. And Paul's not. But they're double agents. And the enemy has specifically planted them within the leadership of the church at Corinth to overtake what God's doing. The enemy's trying to tear down the walls of orthodoxy and truth, if you will, and he's doing it through using plants within the church leadership in Corinth. So again, if you look in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, by the way, Paul refers just 
tangentially to these guys throughout the letter. It's only when you get to chapter 11 that he finally comes up and says, these guys are false apostles. They're not real. They are deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. He says later, it's no surprise, Satan appears as an angel of light. No wonder if his servants appear as angels of light also. So on one hand, the Corinthians are easily duped because they're carnal. And they base their judgment on what they can see and what looks impressive on the outward appearance. And they've got agents, double agents, people who are intentional about getting into the ranks of leadership and then spreading deception. That's what they were about. And they were open on both fronts. Now, the war and the weapons, if you have a handout, it's point three. Uh, Paul says, verse 3, we don't war according to natural means. Uh, The word there is the same word that's translated elsewhere, soldier. Uh, Verse 4, he says, the weapons of our warfare. The Greek there is hoplon. If you know uh, soldiers, well-appointed soldiers back in the day were called hoplites. It's the same thing. They were well-armed with the tools of the trade, with the weapons of their day. He says in verse 5, we're destroying speculations. This word destroy means they're tearing things down. Paul says we're tearing down the construction of these walls of deception that you guys are entertaining. He says we're taking captives, thoughts and ideas. We're taking captives. He says we are punishing disobedience. It's like a military outfit that has discipline and rigor. All the language here is about warfare. Paul says, I've come in, I'm like a general, and I'm approaching this town, and I'm going to tear those walls down, and I'm going to go in and I'm going to capture the city. And everything he's talking about has to do with what did they believe and what was true. It's all about the battle for the mind. Now, Paul does not specifically here say what his weapons are, which is kind of interesting, but here he doesn't. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. They have God's power behind them. But we know a couple of the things at least. The first is this, Christ has given Paul his authority really and truly. And so Paul operates under Christ's commission, and that has its own authority and power. You see that in 10 verse 8, our authority which the Lord gave for building you up. He says exactly the same thing in chapter 13 verse 10. So Paul says, guys, I'm acting under the king's commission in his name with his authority. When you read Matthew 28 and Jesus tells the disciples, all authority has been granted me in heaven and earth and therefore you go in my name and do these things, it's the same word. So the Father has given King Jesus all authority in heaven and earth and Jesus has given his authority to Paul and Paul really is his spokesman. And that's one of the weapons. Paul is the real deal. And at some level, you can't fake that. He has Christ's authority. Part of that was displayed in the miracles he worked. But of course, at some point in the future, Jesus said people would stand before him and say, Lord, we did some miracles in your name. And Jesus says, well, yeah, but you were never mine. I I never knew you. Miracles Jesus also used, though, tended to be a way of attesting the claim. So Paul says one thing, and the power of that authority is manifested in the miracles that were performed also. That's not 100% uh, the miracles, not 100%. You know, the Antichrist in the future, 2 Thessalonians says, will perform great signs and wonders. 
But Paul had Christ's authority, and it came out in the way he spoke, and it came out in what he did. That was one of his weapons. The second one is a weapon that not only Paul had, but you and I have today in spades, and that is the sword of the Spirit. You know, if you look back at Ephesians 6 again, it talks about what a soldier in that day looked like. And so if you were a soldier going into battle, if you were a hoplite, you had a belt around your waist, and you had a breastplate on, and you had a shield, and you had a helmet, you had shoes on your feet, and the last thing you had, that's all defensive, by the way, the last thing you had, the only offensive weapon you had was a sword in Ephesians 6. And the sword, Paul says, is the word of truth. The sword of the Spirit, the offensive weapon Christians have, Paul had, is the sword of the Spirit. It's the truth. It's the Scriptures, God's Word. So Paul says, when I'm coming into this battle and I'm facing this opposition and there are walls to tear down, the weapons of my warfare are the authority in the name of Christ himself and the truth of the Scriptures. And, you know, if you think about it as Christians today, we have those same weapons for warfare today. We operate from Matthew 28 in Christ's authority and in his name. And we have the truth of the scripture, at least between the pages of our Bible, if not in our minds, maybe as much as we should. More on that later. If you ask the question to Paul or to you and I today, what's at stake, Paul? These guys come in, they, uh, they tell a good story, you know, I think they're credible. What's at stake if I believe them instead of you? Or for us today, what's at stake if we believe one line instead of another? You know, somebody's version of truth and ultimate reality versus someone else's. You know, don't all dogs go to heaven? Isn't all truth about the same? And and does anything really matter? If Jesus is who he said he was, if the scriptures are what they declare themselves to be, if the New Testament church was really Christ's church, then there's actually quite a bit at stake, isn't there? I mean, ultimately, for us as individuals, heaven and hell are at stake in what we choose to believe. Heaven and hell are at stake. Those are pretty high stakes, heaven and hell. The Scripture's clear that it's based on what a person chooses to believe, whether their eternity is spent in paradise with Christ, where there are pleasures and joy forever, or whether they join Satan, Christ's archenemy, in the place God made for Satan, the lake of fire that Revelation calls the second death. So if you say, Paul, gosh, you know, does it really matter if I believe you or if I believe these other guys, if I believe in your Jesus or their Jesus or your gospel or their gospel? Well, yeah, it really does. Because what's at stake is heaven and hell for every person on the planet. Heaven and hell, that's that's all that's at stake. It's a little thing. It's eternity. That's what's at stake, for sure. You know, another thing that's at stake, though, you can trust in Christ. You can acknowledge the appeal of the gospel and who Jesus said he is and what he did on your behalf, and you can be saved, and you can live the rest of your life in error, failing to fill your mind with the truth of God's word. And you know what you'll experience in this life? You'll experience sin and death. Sin and death. I just heard a story last week Young Christian uh, couple, some kids involved, guys not well-schooled. This is a terrible story, but the guy unemployed, trying to make some money, knows some shady characters, and they invite him to a drug deal with them, stupidly. This is out of Proverbs, guys, straight out of Proverbs. You know, 
throw your lot in with us, we'll make a lot of money, man, it'll be great. So he does. And he's arrested. And he's thrown in jail. And you know what he didn't know? These drug dealers, the police had said, you've got to give somebody up to us. So they said, sure, we've got somebody. This guy had never dealt drug in his life. Never. He's a father. He's a husband. He's got responsibilities. He's in jail for a year. Now, I don't know if his, his claim on Christ is valid or not. I don't know. And that, for me, that's not the point. It's possible to trust in Christ and live your life in error without the benefit of the truth of the Scriptures, and you will experience death and destruction in your life. That is what you'll get. So even if you're saved and going to heaven, without the sword of the Spirit, without the armor God has given us, without knowing what's true, and the wisdom to behave on that, to act on that, we get death and destruction in our life here in our time on the earth. That's what's at stake for all of us. The other thing that's at stake, this sounds a little harder to get a hold of, God's glory is at stake. God is honored when we say, Lord, you're God and we're not. Your words are truth and that's what we need. And to the degree that you and I fill our minds and bow before God and say, Lord, you are God and we're not. Your words are truth. And we're going to let the truth of your word inform our thoughts and our opinions and our judgments. That honors God and it honors Christ. So what's at stake? Heaven and hell are at stake. And life and death in our experience on the earth is at stake. And God's honor is at stake. There's a lot on the battlefield to fight for in Christ's name. And for our own sake. And for the sake of our family and people we know and love. There's a lot at stake. Kids, again, young adults, adolescents, young men, young ladies, uh, again, just think about this. This stage of life you're in, you're making up your mind about a lot of things. And, and what you choose to believe is true and what you choose to act on, it will have sometimes lifelong impact for you and for other people. So ask yourself, what do I believe is true? Who do I listen to? Who shapes my opinions? Who am I hanging out with? If I'm hanging out with others who aren't Christians so that I can appeal to them for Christ, am I becoming like them or are they coming to Christ? That's a great question. We always ask our girls. Who's becoming like who? If you're being evangelistic in your relationships, that's great. Absolutely. But just ask yourself, who's, who's changing who? That's huge. Who's shaping your thoughts? What are the books you're reading? What's the music you're listening to? And by the way, <clears throat> I am not narrow at all in my sort of judgment about what we read and what we look at. I'm probably broader uh, in what I'm willing to view or think about or consider than many, maybe most Christian, because they're often learning tools. But I've got a standard that I can compare any of that stuff I read or see against. I've got a standard that I know is rock solid. And depending on what you're listening to, what you're watching, who you're hanging with, the thoughts you're entertaining in your mind... That is the battlefield, and, and make no mistake, the enemy is out to deceive you and destroy you. This is John 10. You know, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and you know what? I'll give you life. And not a little, I'll give you a lot. And Jesus says, in contrast to me, there's another force out there, there's another guy out there, and he is intent to rob you, to kill you, and to destroy you. So guys, kids, adolescents, young men, young ladies... This is just a pivotal time of life for you. I mean, you've got to take this so seriously. I know it doesn't, sounds like everything's fun and games sort of at one level, but it's not. You're making up your mind. You're in the battle, 
and your mind is part of the battlefield, who are you listening to? How do you know what's true? What are you going to choose? Who are you going to follow? And on that, <laughs> read your Bibles, adults, kids, juveniles, ladies, men, young, old. Uh, if we don't know the Scriptures, guys, the Bible on your shelf does you no good. When you interact with others, when you watch the news, when you're deciding what's true and what's not, the Bible on your shelf does you no good. It's the truth in your mind and in your heart and in your soul that affects the what we believe and how we choose to live. It's not a book on a shelf. The sword on the shelf does you no good. It's got to be in your mind. It's got to be in your hand. Are we reading our Bibles? This sounds really simplistic, really fundamental. It's really true. Are you reading your Bible? Are we taking the sword of the, the Spirit, the word of truth? Is that in our hand? Is it in our mind? If it's not, we're helpless. We don't have a criteria against which to judge deception if we don't know what the Bible says and what it teaches. And we need to pray. This is one of the other things Paul says in Ephesians 6. It's a spiritual battle. And Paul says, I'm not waging it with carnal or fleshly or human means. And when we pray to God, we understand this is a spiritual battle. I can't wage it against another person. The other people, they're pawns that the enemy is using. It's not a battle against other people, though other people are involved. It's a battle of the mind. It's a spiritual battle. It's spiritual warfare. It's ideas. You know, Paul talks about in Timothy, doctrines of demons. Those are teachings. Those are just things people believe. But Paul says they're, they're, they start from demons. They start from the pit of hell. And when you believe them, you get death and destruction. Read your Bible and pray. Let me close with this. You know, the Allies won D-Day in the battle for Normandy using deception. They knew Swen Z's art of war, used deception. There's another a battle that raged in the 1500s, and the protagonist in that battle, he didn't use deception. You know what? He came to the church doors with a sword in his hand with the sword of truth, and he nailed 95 points of disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope up on a door, and he challenged, literally, the powers of the world when he did it. Martin Luther did in 1517. He challenged, literally, the powers of the world. The papacy was in league with the rulers of Europe, and when he knocked that 95-point paper on the wall... Paul was just, he was just like Paul. He was coming and he was storming the castle. And he said, I'm tearing down a fortress. And just briefly for the historical perspective, if you remember back in this day, the Pope, Leo X, had a little project, St. Peter's Cathedral going on. He needed some coins. And by the way, he was lining his own pocket as well. And the bishop overseeing Martin Luther's arena was lining his pocket as well. There was huge corruption in the Roman church in that day. And so they had this little scam going called selling indulgences. And this was the deal. Your loved one has died. You know, pity you and pity them because they're in purgatory, burning for their unconfessed sins. But you know what? If you'll pay us enough money, we can guarantee by papal edict that your loved one will be forgiven their sins and will go from purgatory, spring right into heaven. And Tetzel, one of the, the main uh, advocates of this, had some really cheesy 
phrase, when the coin something drops in, the soul sings. Anyway, you guys probably know it. I forget it. So there's just graft and corruption. And when Martin Luther storms the castle, the church at Wittenberg, he posits 95 points that he says these are untrue. The Pope cannot forgive sin. Christ forgives sin. You can't sell indulgences. And a host of other things along the way. When he did so, he called all the powers of hell down on his head. And so at the Diet of Worms, Luther was arrested. The Diet is not of, we're not eating worms. We're at a general assembly in the city of Worm in Germany. And Luther's there to give account. And basically the church says, look, Luther, Marty, you renege on these things you said or we're burning you at the stake. You give up these accusations or you're toast, literally. And Martin Luther, just like Paul, he says, I'm not backing down, I'm not recounting. This is what he said, famously. He said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Luther says, I have no option. I can't say or speak or do other than I am because my conscience is captive to the truth. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Now, when this council was done, they condemned Luther. They said, anybody who can, arrest him because we're going to torch him. And, of course, he was abducted by a friendly force, hidden in a castle. And Luther goes on to live many years preaching and writing the truth of the Scriptures. And Luther, one guy in Europe, started small. He started a little movement called the Reformation. And you and I are in the stream of the Reformation today. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the Reformation. That's Luther. He said, there's a fight and I won't back down. I know what's true. I know who Christ is and I am captive to that. Guys, there, there is a battle and we cannot afford to underestimate the ways and the means and the degree to which the enemy is seeking to deceive us. We have truth if we care to read it. We have the truth if we care to know what it is and act on it. And there's a few things, little things at stake like heaven and hell, life and death, and the glory of God. Just a few little things. Father, we want to bow humbly before you this morning and acknowledge that you are God and we are not. And Lord, that you have words of truth. Lord, we say with Peter out of John 6, Lord, to whom should we go? We know you. We, you have words of truth and we know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Lord, I pray that every one of us here this morning can say that, Lord Jesus, we know who you are. Our minds, our wills, our hearts, our consciences are captive to you and to your truth. God, would you help us, especially would you help 
the young folks in this church here and now, would you help them to lay hold of the truth such that they are immovable and unshakable in knowing what's true, in having a grid to determine what's deception and what's truth, what they can trust and who they can trust and who and what they can't. God thinks that you are a mighty fortress for us yet today. Thanks that we walk, Lord, in the victory you've already provided. Thanks that the weapons we have to wage this war are not of our own doing, but are mighty by your doing to the pulling down of strongholds. And Lord, with Luther, help us to do just that. To Jesus' honor and glory, amen.